Hi, this is Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith with the National Police Association, and this is the NPA Report. I have a guest with me today. Uh, boy, he has done it all. He uh, he was NYPD, then he made the move to the federal government. He's a trainer, he's an author, he's a speaker, and uh, he's got a really interesting story to tell. And so I thought that you needed to meet him. Uh, Pete Forcelli, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, so first and foremost, tell us about your police career because it's uh, uh, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it was a good run. Um, I started back in 1987 in January. Um, I took the test actually in 10th grade to become a New York City police officer. But uh, at age 20, um, January 1987, I got sworn in to the New York City Housing Authority Police Department. Back in those days, there were three departments, the Housing Authority Police, the Transit Authority Police, and the NYPD. So I took, they all came off the same test. So in my heart, I wanted to be an NYPD cop. I was a little disappointed when I got the housing job, but it turned out to be a blessing. I mean, what a small department, everybody knew each other. Uh, it was like a family. So started walking a beat back in those days when I graduated the academy, I had to earn a place in a car, uh, in a sector car. Um, you know, so did about five years on patrol. Then I went to plain clothes in what they call the anti-crime units, still in the housing police. And then I got into the detective bureau um, in 1994, January, shortly after my daughter was born. And um, then Rudy Giuliani came in and merged three departments together. So I wound up being a detective in the NYPD um, in a couple of different precincts in the Bronx. And then eventually in the Bronx Homicide Task Force, which was an interesting place to work because back in those days, the Bronx, which is only one county, averaged around 600 murders a year. So you really learn how to work cases. But it was during those days that I also was working on federal task forces and started to work a bit with ATF on a program called Operation Trigger Lock, which was something where we would go after repeat felons that got caught with guns and arrest them federally and proffer them like long interviews, just gather as much intelligence and information as we could. And then those spilled into RICO cases and continuing criminal enterprise cases. Um, so I, I, that's where I kind of fell in love with the ability to work cases federally because the, the sentences were much longer. The Bronx was just a revolving door of justice. Uh, you know, Rikers Island just bred um, better criminals. So having the opportunity to take folks off the street and, and put them in federal prison was effective and I liked it. So I jumped ship and went to ATF, started my career in ATF in New York. Um, and then, you know, bounced around the country, promoted. I was a group supervisor in Phoenix. Um, not a, not a pleasant time because, um, you know, I, I wound up having to testify in front of Congress on a scandal. Um, then was in headquarters as a head of training for a while. Went down to Miami as the head of the Miami office. Was the supervisor that oversaw the Parkland shooting, the Pulse nightclub shooting, the Fort Lauderdale Airport shooting, a couple of hurricanes. And then ended my career back up in headquarters uh, as the head of training for all of ATF. It was a fun run. Yeah, it sounds like an extraordinary career. And you were involved in uh, so many high profile cases. And uh, one of them is the infamous Fast and Furious case. Yes, correct. Um, so I was not involved in the case, but I was in Phoenix and a witness to a lot of the things that unfolded that led to Operation Fast and Furious happening. So can you explain exactly what that was? You know, a lot of people hear about that. It's it's very near and dear to those of us that are here in Southern Arizona. Um, but explain to everybody else what that was. Yeah, Operation Fast and Furious was an investigation that was started in late 
2009, 2010, um, a group was formed that was tasked with investigating Mexico-bound firearms trafficking cases. Um, you know, prior to that, and from 2007 to 2010, my group handled those sorts of investigations. The weird thing about Fast and Furious was that guns were allowed to ride off into the sunset, for lack of a better term, with the agency knowing that those guns were heading into Mexico to arm the cartels. Um, you know, but what, what most folks don't know is that in the years prior to that, we were seizing tons of guns. I mean, um, one year we seized over 2,000 firearms that were not going into the hands of legitimate gun owners, but they were going to be trafficked to the cartels. And the problem that we had was we couldn't get the United States Attorney's Office to prosecute 90% of those cases. So, uh, you know, I, I argued that that contributed and does not justify why Fast and Furious happened, but that, that contributed to it. Now, the, the ironic thing is the same prosecutor who declined most of these cases often because in his mind, if once the gun went to Mexico, the body of the crime was in Mexico, which is um, a ruling that was not upheld by any other U.S. attorney's office in the country. But for years, when we would make those cases, if the gun went to Mexico, we could not, you know, because we were looking at these historic business records and whatnot often. So, but anyway, 90% of those cases were declined. Well, all of a sudden, the strategy became to let the guns go to Mexico. So it made no sense. But um, the, the, those decisions in the previous three years let a lot of firearms traffickers off the hook. And, you know, I just had a problem with that philosophically because those guns could potentially be pointed at some cop or some kid. It was unconscionable. So, I mean, luckily we were able to take some of those cases to the county prosecutor's office um, in the various counties of Arizona, or the, we even had to build a relationship with the state attorney general's office, which didn't prosecute gun crimes. But when, when they heard what was going on, they were so appalled that they started to do it. But I, you know, ironically, the U.S. Attorney's Office, whose job it was to enforce um, the federal firearms laws, turned a blind eye to it. Can you explain to folks the difference uh, between a county prosecutor, a state attorney general, and then the federal prosecutor? Because aren't we all supposed to be on the same team? You would think. Um, and look, in New York, where I had done hundreds of gun cases, they were, you know, um, but obviously, county prosecutors can prosecute violations of state laws. So can the, the state prosecutors. Um, but they can't prosecute violations of federal law unless they're deputized by the U.S. Attorney's Office. That's that's rare. And we didn't have anybody with that distinction in Arizona. So um, but the bigger issue is that in many parts of the country, um, the federal sentencing guidelines are, are more stiff. So when you know you have someone who's involved in a gun-related crime, and again, these aren't good people possessing guns; these are criminals misused, you know, tra trafficking firearms or using firearms in the furtherance of violent crimes. Um, you know, they would do a lot more time in federal prison. And the other thing is, they're taken out of the community because, I mean, look, folks in law enforcement know this. Some people go into prison and get they get turned into better criminals because they build a network of other criminals. They have contacts, um, just like any other businesses, like networking. Um, you know, so like New York City, for example, criminals came and went, came and went out of Rikers Island and, you know, they just came out often more violent than when they went in. So when you took these people and sent them to another state um, to sit in a federal prison, then that disrupts that cycle. You know, so um, but it was very disheartening coming from New York, seeing the U.S. Attorney's Office was very aggressive and going after violent criminals to going out to Arizona and just seeing how lackadaisical that office was, um, you know, for years. And, and again, so many criminals got a pass because of that office's policies. 
Did you have a theory back then on why why this was happening? Why the the uh, U.S. attorney was seemed to be uninterested in Phoenix? You know, I've had over a decade to think about it, and the only conclusion I come to was it was a culture in that office of of laziness, of recalcitrance, and it was sad because federal prosecutors get paid a lot more than the Maricopa County attorneys, and occasionally you would see folks come over from the Maricopa County Attorney's Office and get sworn in as, as assistant United States attorneys. And they were good people. I had friends in the office. Granted, I didn't see eye to eye with the office and its policies, and I blew the whistle on them on, on the uh, Fast and Furious case and a grenade smuggling case as well. But um, you would see these prosecutors like enthusiastic. Wow, I can do federal cases. Like you could see them just really just thrilled to make that jump. And then you'd watch them become disillusioned because they weren't allowed to do the things that they wanted to do because the office was not just didn't take an aggressive stance on crime. So a lot of those prosecutors were quickly disheartened, which is you know, sad to see. You know, they, they wanted to do the right thing, but they weren't allowed to. So when you retired, uh, you made the decision that you were going to expose uh, more about operation fast and furious and and what was happening and of course you had to wait till you retired to be able to do that um talk about what went into that decision yeah there were a few things um look the department of justice lately has been politicized hyper politicized i would say um but the, look, the scandal back in those days there were two different tales that were told. Like if you watched Fox News, you heard the Republican version of events. If you watched CNN or the other channels, you heard the Democrat version of events because you know everybody wanted to point fingers. Like people were saying, well, this started under George Bush. Well, that's not correct. Um, Fast and Furious started under President Obama. Now, did President Obama start it? No, but you'll see, You know, he didn't take ownership of it when it went south. So but what I wanted to do is tell the truth in a non-political way. So, and but I also want to explain how we got there because um, you know other people have written books about Fast and Furious, the scandal itself, but there was a path that was paved that created the culture where Fast and Furious can happen, and the bodies were piling up before Fast and Furious launched. Um, the prosecutors in Arizona turned a blind eye to it. Um, there was another case I mentioned where we had an individual we were investigating who was taking grenade parts that he was buying all over the United States and bringing them to Mexico and manufacturing hand grenades uh, for the Sinaloa cartel. So we, we, he was caught at one point crossing the border with 114 disassembled grenades in his tire, confesses to the fact that, yeah, I make grenades for the cartel, made about 800 of them, um, that he was taking the AR-15 and AK-47 um, civilian rifles, which are you know semi-automatic rifles, they're not uh, true assault weapons, well, he was taking them in Mexico and converting them to machine guns, to assault rifles. Um, we were ordered to let him go. And the, uh, the the issue with this was the grenades, the parts themselves are legal. You can have them because he didn't have the explosive that he was get, getting in Mexico. So, you know, in this instance where many times we could take some of the gun violations to the county or to the state, in this instance, the only charge that he could have been charged with was violating the Arms Export Control Act at the time. And the only game in town to do that was the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they refused to charge him. So, I mean, here, after a confession where he was, in essence, the armorer for the Sinaloa cartel, we were we were ordered to let him go. So, you know, when I blew the whistle on Fast and Furious, I also spoke to the congressional investigators and the Department of Justice Inspector General about that. 
And um, it wasn't until long after um, Dennis Burke was fired as the U.S. attorney that someone, you know, obviously started to take an interest in that case. And luckily, we were able to get the Mexican government involved. We were cooperating with them the whole time. And finally, that guy was taken into custody. But for over a year, he was allowed to continue to make hand grenades because the U.S. attorney's office wouldn't do their job. So I, I speak about those things in addition to Fast and Furious itself. What was it like to sit down and start writing about things that are frankly kind of uncomfortable because, you know, as, as cops, we're, we're pretty proud of what we do. We're proud of where we work. Um, so you had to tell some tales out of school, if you will, um, to bring forward the truth to the American people. Yeah. Well, what happened was um, obviously when you're an employee of the department of justice, you can't, write a book. And I'm sure they would not have liked me writing a book about something that they they didn't like to talk about. So what happened was why I sat down and wrote it was towards the end of my career, I was the head of training for ATF. And I would see new agents at the academy. And you know how it is. Some people are just happy to have a job. So they don't really do much digging. But some of them would research the history of the organization. And they would see that I was a whistleblower. Um, and they would ask me, hey, like what happened? So I even at one point told, um, you know, the the People above me at ATF, why don't we come forward with some training to make sure something like this never happens again? Because, I mean, you can't fix what you're not willing to talk about, right? And I was pretty much told, no, we don't do that. We don't talk about that here. So it kind of, you know, just shush and move along. So it bothered me to see that so many ATF agents that didn't work in Phoenix during that time, because um, look, not everybody in Phoenix knew what was going on in that group. They didn't sit with us. They were in a different building. We found out later, you know, I didn't know that they were walking guns till over a thousand guns had crossed the border. Um, but I wanted our agents to know what really happened there. You know, I mean, it's sad to see folks that that want to be ATF agents. They want to come out and do a good job and, and have an impact on violent crime who weren't aware of what happened. And, and when you read the book, you'll see what happened was an abandonment of basic police tactics and principles. So telling the story also will hopefully make sure it never happens again. You know, policing, of course, now in 2023 has become so extraordinarily politicized. But how did that whole situation become such a political hot potato? I think, well, obviously, the whist, the first whistleblower in the case was John Dodson. He went forward. And there was even talk, which is one of the reasons I came forward, that they were thinking of indicting John Dodson. And I was like, why? All these firearms traffickers got a pass. And you're now you're thinking of indicting a federal agent that blew the whistle on this program. I mean, to me, that was absolutely distasteful, appalling. I mean, I don't even know, you know, um, what are the words to describe it? But the scandal really took off because Brian Terry, a hero, a Border Patrol agent, was killed with a gun that was trafficked by the same individuals who were involved in Operation Fast and Furious. And, you know, look, they're des they definitely needed to have some accountability. One of the straw purchasers in Fast and Furious, again, I mentioned how the U.S. Attorney's Office kicked the can and they didn't want to. One straw purchaser in that case bought well over 600 firearms before they decided he was worth in, indicting. And like I said, he wasn't buying firearms for people who were going hunting to shoot Havelita. Um, He was buying firearms that they knew were being smuggled to murderers, to the cartels who were having gun battles with other cartels. They were having gun battles with Mexican police, with Mexican um, military components. You know, um, so when Brian Terry died, obviously it became political and justifiably so. The murder of a border patrol agent is, is horrific. But the carelessness that led to it 
um, on the part of the ATF folks, because look, even though the U.S. Attorney's Office would not prosecute those cases, um, when when my group was doing those cases, we would do the, the interdictions and we would take those cases to the state or to the county. The idea of letting those guns ride off into the sunset, knowing who they were heading to, is unconscionable. So, I mean, that's and that's why, like I said, you know, if if during that period, if you watch the news, you heard one side story or the other. There was a lot of finger pointing going on. Well, this is this is peeling back the layer of the onion so that folks could see how we got there um, without the political finger pointing. Have you been in touch with Brian Terry's family in this whole process? Yes, I have uh, had contact with them, um, mostly through social media. Uh, I did meet, you know, I was at the first hearing uh, that was televised. It's still on YouTube. It's uh, January 15th of uh, 2011. I actually testified at the same table as Brian Terry's mother. Um, and the sad part is, you know, look, wonderful family. Um, his cousin who was there with us was a Secret Service uh, executive. They never were told the real story either. You know what I mean? And that's, to me, just, um, it's it's so unfair, you know, that here, she lost her son, who was valiantly serving, uh, you know, killed in the line of duty, and she was never given the answers that she deserved. And, you know, so the family, obviously, um, wonderful people. I've had some contact with them. Um, I'm hoping that, that reading the book brings them some peace as well, you know. Uh, and the book is actually dedicated to to Brian Terry and to uh, Jaime Avila, the, the um, ICE agent or HSI agent, rather, who was killed in Mexico during a cartel ambush, you know. If there are any heroes in this tale, it's it's those two men. Fast forward now from from this to 2023. Um, what's your thoughts on the border now today? It's terrifying. Um, well, fentanyl wasn't a thing back when I worked down here. Now, look, you have over 100,000 Americans who have died uh, as a result of fentanyl poisoning. We know that the precursors are coming from China, and China has a 100-year plan to surpass the United States as the world superpower. Um, I think they're working with the cartels, you know, and cartels are in it for the money, obviously, um, to, to reach that goal. Don't forget the Chinese, um, the, the the Brits conquered them through the opium. I mean, basically got them all addicted to opium. So they've, they've learned from their past. We should learn from ours. That's why I wrote the book. But, um, you know, the other thing is some of the cartels that have grown, like the uh, CJNG um, and down in Jalisco. They were in their infancy back when I was working the border. Um, so, I mean, we heard of them. Now they're patrolling large swaths of Mexico in marked, uh, you know, armored vehicles in uniform. I mean, some of the stuff going on is truly mind boggling. And the fact that we have such a porous border and then you have this stuff going on in the Middle East and Middle Eastern men crossing. It, it really makes you wonder what our leaders are thinking, why, why they don't secure the border and enforce the nation's immigration laws. Um, for our safety. I mean, I'm I'm a survivor of the attacks on September 11th, wound up getting lung cancer, as, you know, uh, as a result of being on the pile. That took only 19 men to do, right? And we don't know how many dozens or hundreds of men with that same mindset have come across our border. We have no idea. Explain to people the vicious nature of the Mexican drug cartels. Well, I look, I mean, I've seen um, images because when I was working in Phoenix, I used to get the bulletins, National Drug Intelligence Center bulletins. I've seen images of, of bodies hung in public showers, skinned, presumably skinned alive, you would think. I've seen beheaded bodies. I've seen people hung from bridges to send a message to 
politicians to law enforcement. I mean, they're using the same tactics that terrorists use in the Middle East. But for some reason, our elected leaders don't want to offend our neighbor to the south. So we don't use that harsh language that we should use. But I mean, look, the fact that they've slaughtered over 100,000 Americans through poisoning things like pills and, and you know, opiates um, is terrifying enough. I mean, that's that's more than we lost in several wars. You know, I mean, some kid thinks he's taking a Valium because he's nervous you know, about getting on a plane and never wakes up. That's tragic. You know, it's it's terrifying. And just the the lack of initiative by our elected leaders is just it blows my mind. Yeah, it is. It's it's absolutely extraordinary. Pete, this is going to be an amazing book. I know it comes out in March. Tell folks where they can find you, uh, where they can find the book, how they can pre-order it. Sure. Well, it's available for pre-order on uh, on Amazon. It's called The Deadly Path. How Operation Fast and Furious and Bad Lawyers Armed Mexican Cartels. Um, it's also available uh, through Target and Barnes and Noble. Um, and then as far as contacting me, I'm on LinkedIn, Peter J. Forselli. Um, so yeah, occasionally folks will reach out and ask me to give a presentation on Fast and Furious or 9-11. Uh, always happy to do it for, you know, for the right organization or for a good cause. Because um, look, 35 years in the profession, it, it's still nice to give back. And, you know, in, in some ways, I look at it as paying back the uh, the old folks back when I started with white hair that took me under their wing and taught me the job. I, I feel like I have a duty to to pass that knowledge on to the next generation. Now we're the old folks with the white hair, right? Well, <laughs> no, my hair, some of it quit. I fired the rest. <laughs> I'll tell you, Pete, this has been such a fascinating conversation. And we so appreciate you being with us. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Ma'am, put the gun down! Put the gun down! Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, Officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.